Welcome to Self-Release Songs. I'm your host, David Garrick. So before we get into today's episode, uh, we know who our next president will be. It'll be Joe Biden, and our current idiot president won't concede, and he's saying a bunch of stuff about election fraud. But you can find that anywhere. So instead of talking about that, I want to talk about gratitude, because this whole episode is about gratitude. Uh, When I came back to writing after writing at various places over the years, uh, I got a leg in and actually wrote about comedy first. And an editor named Jack Betts, who was at a paper I was working at, uh, let me write something about Wesley Willis. And uh, it was a series I had called Love Letters to Music about real things that happened to me over the years of going to see shows and interacting with bands. And it was about taking uh, blues musician Scott H. Byram to go see Wesley Willis for the first time. And it's one of my favorite stories to tell, um, and I'll tell it on another episode. But Wesley, Wesley Willis has passed away, and he was he had already passed away when I had written the article. Um, but I was grateful that he gave me a chance to write about music, and that started what has been now like a six-year journey, seven-year actually, uh, writing about music, writing about artists, uh, writing about stuff that excites me, discovering new music, um, writing about icons, and it's a ride that I'm so happy I went on. And I'm so grateful for everybody that supported me, that let me showcase their music to the world and became friendly with me. And that's kind of leads us into this episode. Uh, this episode features Fat Tony. Uh, Fat Tony is one of my favorite rappers of all time. And aside from the fact that I don't think he's ever put out a bad record, aside from the fact that I think he's probably one of the greatest live performers you can ever see, He's always been nothing but nice to me. And from the moment I met him to this conversation, he's always been gracious and just gone above and beyond to be a good guy. And I'm so grateful for that connection, and I'm so grateful that he's that way. Uh, you talk to a lot of people when you do this for a living, and some of them are cool and some of them are not, but you really appreciate the ones that are genuine. And Fat Tony is as genuine as it gets. Uh, We talk about a lot on this episode, from him growing up in Third Ward and how eclectic a neighborhood that is and how wonderful that neighborhood is, how he grew up, his mother, his father, uh, looking for Big Mo at his school, uh, Houston rap history, Screw, all kind of stuff. Uh, We talk about his debut album, and uh, we touch on his records over the year. Then we really focus on his last four releases, 10,000 Hours, Wake Up, Live at No Audience, and finally Exotica. And if you have not heard Exotica, you have to hear it. It is one of the most diverse hip-hop records you're going to hear. I think it's one of the best records of 2020. And what makes it special is his longtime collaborator, Goldeneye, is a part of it. It was written in Brooklyn. It was recorded in Jamaica. And hearing Tony talk about 
what went into making the record, and his whole concept for these last four releases is truly magical. You'll get to learn how 10,000 Hours was made, how Wake Up was made, why he made the live album the way he did, and all that went into Exotica. Uh, It's a really great episode. I can't wait for you to hear it. So without further ado, here's Fat Tony. So let's kind of roll things back. I mean, I know you're from Houston. Are both yes. your parents Nigerian, or is it just your father? Only my father. My my uh, father fought in the Nigerian Civil War on the losing side, which is the Biafra side. Um, my father's Igbo. Basically, Biafra wanted to separate from Nigeria and become their own country. For many, many reasons, but a really simplified version is in their part of the country, they had a lot of the oil resources. And many world powers backed Nigeria to prevent them from becoming their own country. And they had a very bloody and terrible war where many people starved and died. This, this happened basically when my dad was a high school student. He got shot. He survived. Uh, After the war ended, he finished his high school degree, and he scrapped up some money and moved to the United States. He ended up getting to Houston after being in Oklahoma for a while. And in his German class, my mother was the TA. My mom was getting her master's in uh, German and um, that is how they met. She basically stepped to him and told him that he was doing poorly and that he should drop the class, and they just started dating. <laughs> but, um, my mom is from Houston. She is from Third Ward, born and raised there. I mean, that's it's kind of strange for people that aren't from Houston to understand why it's at the ethos of everybody that's from it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, can you speak to a little bit to how Houston kind of shapes shapes an artist or anybody, really? Definitely. Well, I would like to, in particular, speak about being from Third Ward because I feel like it's a unique place. It's a place that's a historically black neighborhood. So within my neighborhood, you have two schools. You have TSU and the University of Houston, TSU is an HBCU, black college. Um, You have a neighborhood where you have uh, housing projects like the CUNY Homes right across from TSU. You have scholars, you have artists, you have doctors. Um, At one point, the the, uh, Houston chapter of the Black Panthers had their headquarters in Third Ward, and one of their prominent leaders, Carl Hampton, was actually murdered by the Houston Police Department. And my mother is old enough to actually remember the night that they had the shootout with the Black Panthers there, which wasn't far from where she grew up. Uh, so I think growing up in Third War was really interesting because I think on a political level, most people were 
progressive or at least moderate, and that really informed a lot of my upbringing, right, from my parents to my grandparents to my schools. Even though I went to public schools, I think teachers at those schools were all really, really good and were really open about the history of black Americans and about bigotry and about art and everything else. So I felt like growing up, the possibilities were endless. There was never a sense that I couldn't do anything or be anything, and I got to experience many different people. You know, even though it's a predominantly black neighborhood, I did go to schools with a few white kids, Mexican kids, Salvadorian kids, Vietnamese kids, a little bit of everything. I mean, you it's interesting because Third Ward is unbelievably diverse in a city that's known for being yeah. diverse. I mean, was there anybody early on before you started rapping that you like looked up to as far as musicians wise that came out of Third Ward? Definitely. Big Mo. Because I used to go to a karate school on Alameda Street called Master Mungu, who has since passed. And I remember he had a Big Mo poster in his office. And I asked him about it. And, and, and it's the Big Mo poster for, like, the first album, City of Syrup. And I asked okay. him about it. And he was like, oh, those, like, rapper guys, they, like, come in here sometimes. And, like, they just talk to me. And I felt like people from the neighborhood probably would just talk to him because he was older black guy. He was like funny. You know what I mean? He like probably had a bunch of wisdom. Like I'll never forget this one time we were doing class and there was a big ass roach in the room and me and all the other kids, I'm I'm in like the fifth grade or something, right? Me and all the other kids are like, kill it, kill it. And he comes up and he picks up the roach with his hand and he walks out and he places it on the uh, ground outside and it comes back to us and and it's like there's no reason to kill or be violent towards anyone that has not harmed you, any living thing. And I just remember being like, whoa, that's deep. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm not surprised that, um, you know, people who weren't even doing uh, karate would come and talk to him. And big Mo, also, there was a rumor that he was in my middle school once. I went to Ryan Middle School, which is on Elgin, and um, I remember me and my friends skipped our class to walk around the school to, like, try to find him, to, like, try to find Big Mo and, and, like, other rappers. Like, the rumor just kept spiraling. Like, first it was Big Mo, then it was like, oh, it's Mo and his little flip, too. You know, so I feel like... Big Mo, Little Flip, and Lil Kiki, who all had their, like, big hit songs, their, like, first hits when I was in the fifth and sixth grade. Those are the first Houston rappers that I ever noticed. And out of all three of those, I knew that Big Mo was from Third War Two, and I was blown away by it because in my mind I was like, oh, I could just see him sometime, like, Maybe he's at the grocery store or something, you know, even though I yeah. never did. Just, like, having that in, like, the back of my mind, I think, gave me a sense of pride. Because I wanted to be a rapper then, too. I wanted to be a rapper pretty much soon as I learned about rap music. Because I loved music. And I remember 
when I was in second or third grade, I learned about crisscross, which by that point was already an old fad. Like, this was years after Jump and their big hits. But I remember seeing them and being like, wow, these are some little kids like me, and they're making music, so I can start making music. And I tried to get my, like, cousin Lawrence to come rap with me, and he was not interested at all. And I was like, how could you not want to be a rapper? <laughs> That's funny. Um, I don't know, man. That second crisscross record, De Bomb, is not bad. It had that one song I would on like it. to hear it. It I I like know that there's um there's like a beat from that album that Jermaine Dupri made with uh Screw Use for June twenty seventh, which is a huge song in our culture. So, you know, I think that that second Chris Cross album has a lot of good on it, but I've never heard it outside of a screw tape. <laughs> It's it's funny you bring up Screw because I got a lot of shit a couple years ago by saying Screw was had passed and I didn't mean that like celebrate that he died. I was just trying to say it's a new era. There's new guys coming up. If we're going to talk about rap in Houston, we should talk about the new guys as well as the legends. Because I mean I could talk for three yeah. hours about the first Ghetto Boys record. You know, I don't yeah, know totally. that, but. I mean, that's just... Which Ghetto is Boys. also the pre-Screw era. That was a completely different era, too. Yeah, I mean, all that horrorcore shit. Because there were multiple groups on Rap-A-Lot that kind of followed in that gore kind of hip-hop. Um, yeah. I mean, I know it got coupled in with gangster rap, but... Uh, yeah, the first Ghetto Boys record, and then the Rick Rubin redone one, I mean, that was like my Bible. Yeah. And because Rap-A-Lot was so close to where I grew up on the Northwest side, you mm. know, we always knew when they had shows. I mean, that's like one of the earliest memories I have as a teenager being like 15, going to a show I had no business being at and seeing Love the Ghetto it. Boys. But Love that. Uh, yeah, there's this artist. I can't remember her name, but her song was Stick and Move. And because I was too young to get what that meant, I was all about that song. Was it I mean, Choice? Later, I kinda, huh? Was it a rapper yeah. named Choice? It might have been Choice. Yeah. She had a song called Stick and Move, and I didn't get it. I was like, it, was, it had such a good beat. That's all I cared about. And then years later, I was like, oh, wait, this is not about what I thought it was about at all. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's like nasty But that's raps, cool. Right? I mean, there was, you know, Houston's always had this strong rap culture before Screw. Well, you're you're younger than me, so coming up, I mean, I would assume Screw was still a big deal when you were coming up, right? Yeah, and I and I just checked. Uh, Stick and Move is by choice. Yeah, um, there you go. Screw was Screw died in 2000, which is which is when I started going to middle school, right? So. I knew more about Screw after he passed because listening to music prior to that, I just listened to the radio or I'd watch TV. I would watch Street Flavor on uh, Channel 8 PBS or I'd watch MTV or BET. So that's how I learned about music. And I, I think I was just too young to really know about Screw when he was alive. I got into, into Screw really 
when I went to high school because I had this one friend named Terrence who was like a screwhead. Anytime a new album came out, he would always get the chopped and screwed version. And I would start to get mad at him when I'd borrow the CD because I'd be like, damn, I want to hear the regular speed. But then, then I started to investigate more of Screw. And I had another homie in uh, high school, this white kid named Alan Dingus, and he was really into Screw and into 360 Mafia. And he always wanted us to go to Screwed Up Records and Tape. And I remember going there with him several times, and I bought a few CDs, just like based on like the track list of songs I recognized. And then I started to like get it. You know, I back in high school, I would listen to Screw Tapes in my room with all the lights off if I had a bad day and stuff. Because I, was, cause I started to view Screw music as soothing, you know, Screw's music kind of gives me the same feeling as listening to ambient music. It's really calming. You know what I mean? And yeah. I started to notice that when he would bring back a certain lyric, oftentimes it was because of what the artist was saying. You know what I mean? There was a point that he was trying to make clear. And I loved how uh, Screw had so many different types of music on his tapes. Like on a screw tape, you could hear a Morris Day and the Time song or a Prince song or a Brandy song, or you could hear a member of Screwed Up Click like Lil' Kiki rapping or a Scarface song or an E-40 song or a Sibo song or a Tribe Called Quest song. Like truly touched every style of music from the 80s and 90s. And I thought that that was really interesting. And, um, you know, Screw just started to, like, become part of my repertoire. Just came, just became one of my biggest influences because I could see through his music that he understood the history of music and had an appreciation for that history and wanted to share that knowledge, which is how I felt when I was coming up. I, too, love music of all styles. I love all kinds of rap music. I love punk music. I love club music. I loved R&B. I loved funk music. I loved Prince. I loved everything equally, and I didn't really see reason to separate it. So when I would make mix CDs for myself, they were really similar to, to like screw tapes as far as the diversity of the uh, track list. So he just became one of my heroes instantly. I think in a lot of ways he's the Africa Babata of his generation because a lot of took like dire straits and like craft work and somehow made rap out of it or well made you know beats and hip-hop off of it and so and screw did a lot of that too you know i think he's was super under underserved when he was around i guess in that time he was performing it would have been like master p would have been a big deal you know yeah totally Um, but after he, we lost him, no, it it def, it's weird. I've dug into a lot of those records and realized how diverse they were. Because at the time, for a while, I thought, well, it all sounds the same. Yeah. And it wasn't until really digging into it that I realized, oh, wait, no, it, it doesn't really sound the same. Um, it's, it's like listening to a Ramones album where from the outside for 
from like a superficial from a, a superficial view of it, it feels like it's just the same song over and over, the same shit. But when you dive into it, it's like wow, they're actually saying things that I've never heard a band say before. They're they're like really flipping it on 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 its head, and I think that that's the case with a lot of music that is original or unique or different. It's kind of hard for you to understand it at first. Many of my favorite artists, many of my favorite art, period, films, books, the first time I engage with it, I might like it, but I might not fully get it. But that second or third time, I'm like, whoa, there's some genius shit going on in here. Well, I mean, speaking of genius shit, when did, is Love Life the first release for you? Yeah, that is that is basically my demo CD. And funny thing is, my longtime producer Goldeneye, also known as Tom Cruise, he the first night that we ever met, he came with me to my first recording session to make the Love Life EP. Oh, that's crazy. He was in town, so he was in a group called Supreme. They were signed to Warner Brothers. They were mentored by MERS. I was a big MERS fan back in high school, and I discovered MERS in the back of Thrasher magazine. And I was like, wow, they're advertising a rapper? Let me check him out. He had a song about skateboarding on his album, and I just loved his shit. And when I heard about GoldenEye's group Supreme, it was on MERS's website, and he described them as a mix of Souls of Mischief and Outcast. And I was like, damn, I love both of those groups. And those groups, in like my mind at the time, felt pretty different. So I checked them out, and they were young like me. He is, he is just three years older than me, right? So okay. I'm listening to their music, and I'm like, wow, these guys are kind of on similar shit as I am. Like, like on their MySpace page, they would list their influences as UGK, David Bowie, my my uh, bloody Valentine, Three Six Mafia. I'm like, damn, that's like kind of how I look at music, right? And and the music was also jamming and like great too. So I started to write them via MySpace. And at one point, Golden I was like, hey, I'm coming to Houston to work with Mike Dean. Warner Brothers had had arranged for Mike Dean to mix a song from their album. And this was in December of 2007. GoldenEye is on his way to Houston, and before he gets here, Pimp C dies, who was a friend of Mike Dean. So while Mike Dean was mourning Pimp C's loss, he canceled all of his appointments and obligations. So now GoldenEye is in Houston and he has a free schedule. So we have some more time to hang out. So I'm like, this is how young I am. I'm like, yo, my mom is about to take me to the uh, studio. I'm going to have her come and pick you up, give me your address. The address that he gives me is two streets over from my house. So we get to his house, and I'm like, whoa, you, you, you're you, like people live in my neighborhood. Not only did his family live in my neighborhood, I found out that his mom is from Houston. 
and that his aunt was my little brother's school teacher. And on that trip, we started kicking it and just, like, talking about music, really. We didn't he, – he actually gave me a beat on the Love Life EP, and he rapped on another song. But we really spent most of those, like, few weeks just talking. And at the end of the trip, he gave me a beat CD and was like, yo, when me and my group are done with our album, maybe you and I can make a project. And – over the next three years, his group broke up. Me and him started working together and got closer, and that ended up becoming my first album, Rather Gab. And it's really crazy because Bun is on our new album, Exotica, and it really feels like we've completed the circle of the unfortunate passing of Pimp C bringing us closer to each other and having the other half of UGK on our new record. Yeah, that's insane. I mean, you, you, what's the best way to put this? You give it up for the producer. In other words, you shout out the producer more than any rapper I've ever seen. Like, got to. I, I know how it, how it is coming up in Houston for producers. Uh, Jose, as an example, and I would have long conversations about he made a beat for somebody, they never shouted him out, and it's real common. It's real common in all music. It's real common in rap. It's very common in Houston. So I appreciate that you go out of your way to be like, oh, yeah, I made this record, but I made this record with this person. You know, and all of your releases are that way. Is there a reason it's that way for you? Is there a reason you shout out the producer so well? Man, I think it's really important. You know, I'm I'm always trying to speak to a certain type of music fan, right? My music and my art is for everyone, but my stuff is really for people who think critically about music, people like me. And some of my favorite albums, my favorite artists, I am well aware of who the producer was, maybe even the engineer, maybe even the city that they, that they recorded in. And that's part of the whole appeal. One one reason why I wanted to check out the Stooges is because I saw David Bowie produce one of their records. You know what I mean? One yeah. one reason why why I like David Banner is because is I heard that he worked with with uh, Pimp C. You know what I mean? It's it's like a part of the sauce. It's a part of the details that makes the work what it is. And I don't want it to fall on deaf ears, you know, especially as an underground artist, right? So I yeah. go out of my way to make it very clear about what I'm up to, who I'm working with, and why it's important for the people that do check it out to have that information easily. Because if I don't do it, who is going to do it? It's true. I mean, you've spent you spent a good part of your career self-releasing music i mean and now you're on a label i get is do you see a vast difference between the two worlds outside of budget or they feel about the same i would say the biggest difference and i never noticed it until recently even though it's happened before but i think the biggest difference is the manpower the amount of human beings you have working your project like being on Car Park doesn't just mean that they loan me money to make a record. 
they have actual people who are invested in going out and selling my shit and making it happen. Like, I literally have some, like, unread text right now from my two publicists. We're just brain brainstorming about different ideas that we can do, different type of interviews and, like, editorials that we can set up. And and I think having some more brains in the in the mix just makes your just makes your whole shit more interesting. You know what I mean? Bringing more no, I, to the table, like getting more done. I I I think that's the real reason why people work with record labels. It's not just the money. And I think that you don't really understand that until you've been around a while because at first, you just think being on a label means you're instantly blowing up, and it doesn't. And then maybe your next thought is being on a label is just for the money, but it's not just the money. Yeah, it's it's definitely – I mean, you've had an interesting career. I mean, before we kind of get into these last three records, which are all vastly different, but speaks to who you are as a rapper because you can be that diverse, the live show – you know, I've seen the biggest rappers in their prime. I've seen a lot of them out of their prime. I mean, I, I was too young to see Slick Rick, so when Slick Rick came back around, of course I went. I would assume it was better yeah. when he was younger. Not that it was bad, but you know what I mean. And a lot of hip-hop yeah. is low energy. A lot of it's low energy. That's just what it was for forever. You know, it's two guys. Yeah. The Beastie Boys were about as high energy as it got, and even that really wasn't super high energy. Yeah. But your live shows are like no one I've ever seen. I mean, you're in the audience, you're on the stage. I've seen you be on top of bars. I've seen you on your knees yeah. on the floor <laughs> surrounding you. I mean, outside of Blackie, I've never seen anybody have as much audience interaction. Where does that come from? I feel like, you know, and I'm glad you mentioned Blackie because much like Golden Eyes Group, Blackie was, was one of those people that I saw perform and I heard their music and I was like, this needs to be one of my best friends. You know what I mean? And then even when I when I met Blackie, I like brought him around GoldenEye and his people and I was like, yo, there's this other guy that needs to be part of our like crew. Like we're some of the only people I've met who are who are doing rap music in an interesting way that has a wide knowledge of music. And we're not trying to be bougie and, like, hipster and being different for, like, the sake of being different. We are just some fucking regular guys who just love music. Know what I mean? We're, like, not uh, trying to be fucking, like, I don't know, soft, for lack of a better term. I don't know. But um, I think a lot of that comes from youth and having a lot of energy and also being very attracted to those performers who would give it their all. Like, some of my favorite performances early on were, like, Iggy Pop, watching videos of him, or watching videos of At The Drive-In, where, like, you can just see that these artists are really giving it their absolute all. You know what I mean? And that's how I wanted to lead as an artist early on. So that's where I saw a lot of my influence, especially on my early shows, you know what I mean, where it was all about, like, I need to make 
a statement, I've been waiting my whole life to do this. You know, it's kind of like people say that an artist's first album is an album that they've been waiting their whole life to make. I feel like that is how I felt for at least the first five to seven years of me playing concert. Just kind of like all this time I spent in my room. Like, I would be in my bedroom swinging mics around, trying to be like after drive-in. I like broke a light fixture doing it. I would I would practice performing concerts in, in my room all the time since at least being like 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 thirteen or fourteen. Just waiting for the day when I could do it for real. I you know, it's funny you bring up at the drive in. I saw at the drive in a week before Relationship of Command came out. It was a show at a place in Austin called Electric Lounge, which has been gone. God since like 99 hmm. uh, and uh, they were opening for the get up kids in the promise ring and none of us knew who they were and I got told by the bar oh. people that I was dating oh they're from Austin which they weren't and they're walking yeah. around in platforms <laughs> and butterfly collars and one of them's got a fro and we're like what the fuck is this and, and they start <laughs> And I kind of assume, oh, this is what it was like when Hendrix played London. There's all these guys from bands in the room trying to figure out what they're going to do now because they can't do that. I mean, it was like watching a heart attack on stage. And like... Yeah, they they fucking looked like they were about to fall out and fucking die. (laughs) I mean, when when you've seen Fugazi and you're just watching a band that tops Fugazi live. I mean, there's no words. Yeah. And the same was that way when I saw Blackie. I saw Blackie behind a pizza place. And all oh. I, I heard all this noise, and I walk around the corner, and there's all these speakers, and there's this dude in shorts and combat boots and no shirt screaming into a microphone. And while some of the people were into it and some of the people were scared, I was just like, I don't know what this is, but I want as much of this as I can get. Uh, so, but I mean, I, I, I then I got that. Blackie's record. I like saw those shows and loved them. My the first time I saw Blackie, my girlfriend at the time booked him to play this art show, and he brought in all these speakers and was like standing on like top of the speakers screaming, and and it felt like a cross between Three Six Mafia, which I love, and emo music, but not like emo, like, uh, you know, like, like, like warp Tour, but like emo that was closer to hardcore music, like, uh, yeah. you know, Porches of Past or bands like that. And I was like, wow, this motherfucker's mixing those two things mixed, mixed with some like noise shit too. This is interesting. Then I bought his record and I remember listening to it and reading the lyrics of one song and it straight up made me start crying. And I was like, wow, i got to be this guy's friend. <laughs> yeah. And, it is, and it's hard not to be. He's like the nicest guy ever. So these last three records. And he, and he took me on, on, on my uh, first tour, just to shout him out again. Blackie took me on my very first tour ever in 2011 that um, Matt and helped us get a show at Pop Montreal Festival, and Blackie booked all the shows and let me come and open up for him. And we toured from Houston 
up the uh, southeast, up the east coast, up to Montreal, and had a hell of a time. So I'll, I will always love him. Is this the time where at some point he decides he needs to be alone and he takes a van on his own? Yes, yes, and he left us there. Me and him had like had like a falling out over some bullshit at Tom Brooklyn's show. He was like, yo, I'm going to drive to the next show by myself. Um, you're going to have to rent a car and meet me in uh, Montreal. And you know what? Black is the kind of guy who immediately after that tour, we made up, and it was no big deal. And it was just like, what the fuck ever? You know what I mean? Especially because it wasn't any of y'all's van, as I understand. Yeah, maybe it was Mark Austin's van. <laughs> I think it was. I, I think it was. <laughs> yeah, Bubba Hightower told me that story, and I, I couldn't stop laughing. Um, yeah, so, man, fucking black is a dude, man. I, I, I fuck with him a long way. We're, we're in a really bad zombie movie called Zombex. We've done a lot of shit together, man. I love him. Yeah, he's great. So if we if we roll up past Smart Ass Black Boy, not that that's not a great record because it is, but to kind of focus oh, yeah. closer to the last and more frequent time. Ten Thousand yeah. Hours comes out and it's like the opposite as far as sounds go, but it's still you. I know you did that with uh, Heaven, which is uh, Lucas Gorham. Yeah, Lucas Gorham. I guess he's. Is he pausing music or is he done with music? Do we know? Oh, he is. He is not done. He has a new record that he made um, that he's about to put out soon. Lucas could never stop doing music, even if if he wanted to. He is addicted. <laughs> I figured. I called him the Frank Zappa of Houston one time. He let me hear a record that's never come out, and it blew my mind. Um, yeah, that's him, man. Can you kind of describe what went into making that record? Sure, sure. Give me one second. Hey, David, I'm back. Are you good? So with the 10,000 Hours album, that was... So me and Goldeneye, we we made my first three albums. Rabdogab, Double Dragon, and Smart Ass Black Boy. And then he produced half of, Mag- half of McGregor Park because around that time he moved out the U.S. to um, Jamaica. And the way that we make music is always in person. We have never really been the type of um, partners that, like, send tracks back and forth and just edit it. And honestly, I don't really like doing that with many people at all because it doesn't really – it's it's just not the same as being in the room. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so with 10,000 hours, I had moved to Los Angeles for the second time. I, I lived there in 2012, and that's where we made Double Dragon and uh, Smart Ass Black Boy. And then I moved back to Los Angeles at the end of 2016, and I moved in with Lucas. And 10,000 Hours came about just because I would go upstairs to his room and we'd make songs. Like, we would make songs when we got home from, like, a bar 
or just chilling out during during the day, like just making songs for no reason at all. And at one point we had like 14 or 15 songs or at least sketches. And we just thought, you know what, let's let's like sit down and like try to make a full album. But I also had been making songs with some other producers around the same time. And I thought it could be interesting to make an album with a few different producers, but one main producer who's overseeing everything. So Lucas did most of the beats on that album, but he also touched every track. So even if I did a song with a different producer, he would have um, some, like, element to it. Like, the first song on that album, Goldeneye made the beat, but then Lucas added the, like, drum track that's, like, under it, right? Right. And that that was an album where I kind of wanted to speak more from an autobiographical standpoint, you know, which, which I hadn't really done a lot before in my music. A lot of my music had a lot of storytelling in it or, like, me taking on a character, and I wasn't thinking about explicitly talking about me all the time, right? But on 10,000 Hours, I wanted to do that way more. So the opening track, I'm, like, talking about what my life has been like in music. I have a song called Charles that's about my younger brother. No, it was way more on that vibe. And we wanted to make an album that kind of felt like a wide mix of all the things we liked. So that's why you have songs in there that feel a bit country. You have songs in there that feel a bit um, R&B. You have songs on there that feel more like um, Southern rap or like West Coast rap, like a G-Funk thing. We were trying to touch a little bit of everything on that album. And I think more than anything, that's an album that's really similar to like Beastie Boys' Check Your Head, where it really feels like you're just hanging out with the people making the record because there's like little like little parts on that album where like we recorded Lucas cooking or like we just recorded us hanging out in his room talking like added that like the end of song. Justice also plays a role in that album. He played the main riff on the title track, 10,000 10, Hours. So, you know, that's an album where I really just wanted to like show my world and my friend's world too. I mean, it's on Don Giovanni, which is a long running legit label and kind of a nod to a lot of the stuff I know you like, you know, yeah. underground music. I mean, was it, a trip to get to put it out with them? Yeah, it was cool because I never, I'm, I mean, they're by far the most punk label that I've put out stuff with. You know what I mean? And um, I just like Don Giovanni because I like the owner, Joe. I, I just like his attitude about music. Like, he is one of the first label people who I saw that didn't want to suck up the Spotify and wanted to, like, call out the unfairness. And, like, the... Sorry, it's my dog. He was one of the first people who wanted to call out, like, the unfairness and the disadvantages that indie labels are going through in this new world where you have Spotify, who's in bed with the major labels, and they're kind of running everything and kind of determining what is the new mode of the music economy which is, which is really leaving a lot of these independent labels out because it's 
it's it's like getting rid of retail and all these other systems that have been put in place to fund labels and bands and artists for decades now, right? Yeah. And how I got with them was at South by Southwest, Joe approached me about doing a record, and I passed on it. And then at the next South by Southwest, he approached me again. He came to all of my shows, and then it was my last night there, and he was like, dude, I really just, just want to talk to you. It was like 1 in the morning. And he walked all the way from downtown to where I was staying, and I was like, wow, you walked here? He's just like, man, I just really want to, like, how are you about this? And he told me his his ideas for putting out a record and what his label's about, and I was just like, you know what, man? Let's try it out. And I loved it. I love working with them, and I'm still friends with Joe to this day. No, it's a, it, they're legit people. I mean, it's weird. When you work in this a long time, you deal with multiple people, and when you see where anytime somebody says, well, I came from Kill Rock Stars or Don Giovanni or yeah. Thrill Jockey or somebody like that, you're like, oh, okay, they care about music. Uh, yeah, absolutely. The old marketing rep for Don Giovanni is now at Matador. And I was like, oh, okay, good. You know, <laughs> everything will get marketed right because this guy cares about music. Because yeah. you don't work for a label that small for the money. You do it because you totally, believe. Totally, totally. Uh, the next record, Wake Up, again, is very, very different. Uh, you and Tadex, I know Tadex is on 10,000 Hours on a track, right? Like he, he produced yeah. something on one of those songs. How did oh, you wait, link wait. up with him? And it's also the first one with Car Park, I mean, which had to be a trip to get on that label. Definitely. I mean, me and Tadex met because my publishing company – when I first when I when when I moved to LA for the second time, I was living with Lucas. I had just signed with a publishing company for the first time, and they were putting me in all these sessions with just random producers. And some of them were good, some of them were really boring. But in this one session, it was supposed to be with this trio of uh, producers: Tay Dex, uh, Wes and Roger, who is, like, a huge super producer now for, like, Travis Scott, and he made Drum, Broccoli, and the shit for Halsey and all this crazy shit. And at that session, Tay Dex was the first person to get there. Everybody else was running late. And I remember he was drinking a little handle of some Japanese whiskey. And I was like, whoa, what is this? And he was like, oh, I just came back from... uh." Japan, I have some family out there, you know, and I'm really into this. So I'm like drinking this Japanese whiskey and we're just talking about music and I found out he's really into like jazz and all this shit. And I'm just like, wow, this guy's really interesting. And out of that session, I feel like just him and I vibe the most. So we would just start to make music together. And Wake Up was going to be an EP at first. It was going to be a five-song EP that, that we were just going to put out ourselves for fun. And, yeah. And um, I started talking to Car Park about putting out my Exotica album, which I didn't want to make without getting it fully funded from the onset because 
I wanted to record it out in, uh, you know, Jamaica and do all these things. And I just told him, you know what, me and this other producer have this EP. We'll make it a full-length album, and we'll put it out with you guys so we have something that we can have out there to really introduce Fat Tony and Car Park working together before I start making this other album, which wouldn't come out for like another year, right? Or really a year right. and a half. Um, so, and like that, that record was made in a kind of similar way to me and Lucas's 10,000 Hours album, where it was just me and Tay Dex hanging out, often just like by ourselves at our publisher's studio and just making music for just like, I think every week or so we would just meet up and just have, you know, sessions where I, I would give him stuff to sample. We would talk about music, like really just hanging out less of a conceptual um, effort than with my current album. Right. And we just kind of got into a groove and we started to work with the few features who were on the record regularly. Like there's, uh, there is Sophia Feister who's on a few songs simply cause she would, she, her and like, and like Tay Dex were working on music. So he would bring her around and I thought, you know what, it would make it interesting to have her, have a consistent presence on this record because it kind of creates its own world. You know, I feel like Wake Up and 10,000 Hours are some of my loosest records that feel more like a mixtape. You know, it's really about the vibe and just the friendship of the people making those songs. No, I feel that. I, it's, a, it's really weird because at first it was so different. It wasn't that I disliked it. But I think I've told you sometimes, and I do this with Blackie a lot, like, we'll send it to me early so I can wrap my head around it. But it was just, it was like, oh, man, he's doing this now, and which is, the album's crazy good. Yeah. But it's also, like, vastly different, you know? Uh, so I got to apologize to you before we talk about Exotica, because I, you know, you sent me all the press stuff, and I read it, and you sent me the record early. Yeah. And I wrote the review based on the music, and I didn't even write about the conceptual side of it. So I apologize for that. But can you kind of talk about what Exotica is about? Because it is a concept, correct? Sure. Sure. And and I don't fault you for that, because I think it's the kind of record that the more that you dive into it, the more that you understand all of those details and all the stuff that we put into it. But basically... With this album, we wanted to make a collection of stories that were not autobiographical at all because I felt like I leaned too much on my own story on my last two albums, right? So with this album, we wanted to communicate a world to people. And we felt like the title just instantly evokes that feeling of otherworldliness. You know what I mean? The title alone feels like you're going somewhere. You're like about to see something that's unlike where you live and what you're used to. And we wanted to make a 
collection of stories and characters. So with that album, we really spent the majority of our time just talking about who the characters are, what the concepts are, first and foremost. Whereas with um, the last couple records, it's more just like vibing and just throwing shit out there and just see what sticks and what feels right. You feel me? Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely the most diverse record you've made. And it's it's interesting because while there is a Bun B feature and it's good, it is not, you know, there's so many other standout tracks on the on the record. Nothing against Bun B. Yeah. Bun is always great, you know? Um, I mean, was that, how long did it take to make the record? So I was living in Brooklyn at the time. I brought Goldeneye out from uh, Jamaica, and we spent a week writing the album. And during that week, we pretty much laid out all the songs. We, at the very least, had a chorus and a verse for every song and the foundation of the of the beat and a few of them were fully done. And then the next month I went on tour with Black Midi. And before that tour and after that tour and a little bit during it, I kept writing to this record, filling in all those empty spaces, all those verses, you know, sending that back to Goldeneye and getting his like take on it. And then the following month, I went to Jamaica, and we spent two weeks just recording the album. And then we pretty much spent the first six months of this year finalizing all the beats, mixing the record, like really dotting it in. And I think out of all the albums that I've made with him or or with anyone else, this is the one that we spent the most time on taking care of all the details, like really hammering out every lyric, every musical choice, taking two weeks to, like, dial in all the recording, making sure that my vocal performances match what I was trying to convey on the songs, and then spending the first six months of this year making sure that the musical choices that we made were the ones that we needed. And then on the album cover, it's a... Nagashi Armada, how did you hook up with them? Because the cover is also so, very different. So Nagashi was in that group with Goldeneye back in the day. He was a rapper in it. He is also on the uh, Wake Up album. He's uh, featured on uh, Godly. And I was looking for an album cover that was hand-drawn, that kind of felt like a Parliament Fun- Funkadelic album, like the kind of album cover where you could look at it for months or years and keep finding new things in it, new, like, phrases that the characters are saying or or new bits of the animation that you might have missed before. And it's funny because I was trying to rack my brain about who to make this cover. And I got on Instagram and I saw that he posted an IG story saying, hey, to any of my friends, I'm looking to do some album covers, holler at me. And I was like, oh, I could just hit up me and Goldeneye's friend to make this cover. And I think he was the absolute perfect choice. I gave him the album, and I told him I didn't want to dictate what the characters looked like, but I wanted him to 
draw them as he imagined them, but could I trust his uh, vision? And he just absolutely killed it. He 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 also drew the cover for the forthcoming Gambling Man Mariachi remix, and I would love to keep working with him on some album covers too. He just has a unique style that's like a mix of that of that Parliament Funkadelic shit mixed with comic book styles. It's really interesting. I mean, you've been you've been doing this a a minute. I mean, twelve years. Does it finally feel like you kind of made it to a degree? I'm. I definitely feel like with this new album, I'm. I'm on to the next phase of my artistry. I feel like I've hit a milestone. Like what I'm doing with this album, and what I'm also doing in my live shows now. I think that this is the point that I've been working towards, and I've never been more proud of anything I've ever made than this album, Exotica. I truly feel like I'm on to some next level shit. You know what I mean? And I and I think Goldeneye feels the same way too. I feel like everybody involved with this record feels like we're on to something that is extremely unique and is really smart and is really interesting and is musical and is really giving too because we had the listener in mind making making this record. Like we didn't want to make anything that was too of the moment or too disposable. We wanted to make music that people could sit with for a long time and the music could keep giving back to them. They could keep finding meanings in these songs without us spoon-feeding the meanings to them. They could keep finding finding all the nuances musically that we're doing, too. You know, I just think that it's really deep. I can't say it enough. I'm super proud of this album. No, it definitely feels like a bookmark. And what I mean by that is it closes the door on everything that came before it and opens the door to whatever is to come after it. That's exactly um, how I feel. Do you see a tour anytime soon, or are you just kind of doing the streaming and, you know, waiting this pandemic out? Waiting it out, man. Like, like I want to keep it safe. I've played one outdoor show so far, and that felt good, but I don't want to make a habit out of it. I do have some more live stream concerts coming up. I'm I'm doing one on twelve ten and um I just kinda wanna wait it out, man. But like we are definitely planning how we want our shows to be on the next tour when we can have a tour. Like we're talking about that regularly as now that we've had this outdoor show to kind of know what we want to do moving forward. You know what I mean? But as far yeah. as actually touring, I don't know if that's going to happen until 2022. Hopefully, at the end of next year, we can all tour safely, but who is to say? Yeah, no, it's true. About something that, that you said earlier, about how my new album, Sonica, feels like a bookend, like the end of one era and the start of a new era. I was trying to do that by putting out my live album this summer, Live with No Audience, which I look at as a greatest hit. And I feel like it was appropriate for anything 
remotely like a greatest hits album from Fat Tony to be a live album because that's really where I think that I have shined the most, especially in this first decade of my career. So, and and I and on purpose that live album does not include any material from this new album. You know what I mean? It is yeah. solely meant to be to be a summary of what I've done, and this is the start of what's to come. So for anybody out there that wants to find out about Fat Tony and isn't fully aware, I would recommend starting with this new album, Exotica, and my live album, Live in the Audience, and just keep going down the rabbit hole from there. That's a good, that's a good point. That's a good place to end it. And I appreciate you taking the time. It's always good to hear from you. You too, man. Let's uh, talk more. I'm going to holler at you. Yeah, take care of yourself, and uh, we'll talk soon. All right, man. Peace. Go ahead. Self-Release Songs is produced by David Garrick and Closed Captioned. You can find new episodes every Thursday on the Closed Caption website at closedcap.com. You can also stream new episodes on all podcast streaming platforms, or you can support us at anchor.fm. Thanks for listening.